This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. This is Dr. Charles Parker one more time, and I'm telling you, I am so excited. This is a really fun interview. I mean, I have a lot of fun interviews, but this guy, Dr. Andy Farah, has been just one of the best of the people we've talked to because he's so engaging. Anybody who's listened to his 114 Core Brain Journal interview on Hemingway's brain will be changed for the rest of their lives about thinking about writers and suicide and not thinking about brain function when we should really have it on our mind. Thanks so much, Andy, for coming on board one more time. Oh, thank you for having me. It was just such a joy last time. We're going to have another good time. So thank you. Thank you. So I'm looking forward. I'm going to just drop a few words about our sponsors. Then we're going to come back and do a formal intro. Tonight, folks, we're going to be talking about something very interesting from a completely different perspective. One of the things that's really cool about Dr. Farah is he is over here on the writing side. He's a creator. He's an artist. He's a writer. And then he gets right down to biomedical happenings. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So first of all, I want to remind you listeners that how much we already love the reality of data here at CBJ. And today we welcome our clinical friend and our new sponsor partner, Direct Health Access Laboratory. With over 3 million studies, they are deep leaders of experience with the big picture of measuring, just for example, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges, and how those guys affect brain function. They provide a global service with a molecular focus. Stay tuned for more mid-episode. Mid, mid and then we're also going to mention how much we appreciate detailed improvements of structured mind care. Today, we're pleased to welcome another new CBJ sponsor and partner with a deep interest in fresh options to address the complexity, get this, of adolescent treatment failure nationally and internationally. Uh, Barry Robinson Center is built TRICARE friendly. So they provide the holistic environment that sets children, teens, and families on the path to a different kind of more comprehensive healing. From a personal experience right here in beautiful downtown Norfolk, I know their work with families and we have shared a number of folks with them, a truly different residential experience. More in a moment, we'll tell you more mid midterm. So let me tell you about Dr. Fair a little more. Those of you who haven't heard the uh, Hemingway brain piece, uh, Dr. Fair is a native of Charleston, South Carolina, and is now serves as chief of psychiatry at the High Point Division of UNC, uh, University of North Carolina Healthcare. He is interested in discussing, get this, homocysteine theory of depression. He is an expert on some of the underlying principles that cause depression that are way out of range of just throwing meds at them. And he's for the use of reduced B vitamins. We'll find out what reduced B vitamins are in just a moment for depression and for neuroprotection, get this, particularly the prevention of dementias. Yes, we're going to go deep here. So it'll be interesting to know that uh, he has written this book called Hemingway's Brain, which I'm telling you is very, very well written. It's a very interesting book. That's the other episode. So Andy, thank you so much for coming on again. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this deeply arcane study, which is so, in a way, non-traditional, uh, and, and oh, how that happened. You're so kind. Thank you, Charles. Those are wonderful, kind words, and thank you for uh, mentioning Hemingway's brain. I think they, uh, they meant the press mentioned there in the second printing, so that's delightful. You know? Oh, so good. Thank you for thank your, yeah, your help. Congratulations. And, uh, oh, thank you. So, no, this has been a long journey. I remember when I was a resident and my attending said that you know, seven out of 10 people uh, respond to antidepressants. So I remember going through my residency wondering, where in the world is that 70% of people? Because most of these patients are not getting better when I give them the antidepressants. I mean, they get some better, but they never get to remission. And my attending said, well, 
you know, you're in an academic center. We get all the people that are not doing well. We get the most complex cases. When you get in the real world, you'll see seven out of 10 people respond to antidepressants. So I got in the real world and said, where's that seven out of 10 people? <laughs> so, I, so I realized, you know, that what we've been doing with the, the way we treat depression with medication, you know, we've been blocking the reuptake of monoamine since, um, you know, I don't care whether you have an SRI, SNRI, or TCA, you know, generally standard of care is to block the reuptake of chemicals in short supply. And that, that thinking has not changed since 1957 and the uh, synthesis of imipramine. So if somebody told you, you know, you're getting a chemotherapy agent from the Eisenhower administration, you'd find a different chemotherapy, but you'd find a different <laughs> cancer doc. But yet every day people go to the psychiatrist and get kind of the same treatment they've been getting since the Eisenhower administration and don't think twice about it. And now finally, in the 90s, we finally started talking about, it took the late 90s, but finally started talking about, hey, maybe, you know, just getting a reduction by 50% in a HAMD score is not the way to say antidepressants work, but maybe looking for true remission. Uh, and But I began wondering, well, why is it, you know, that uh, we're, we're spending all our time blocking the reptake of chemicals in short supply? Why is it those chemicals are in short supply to begin with? They're either in, you know, serotonin is at a, you know, low level, less than optimal level, let's say, for euthymia and norepinephrine and so forth at baseline or in response to stress or both. And so I started looking at the genetic reasons uh, that may be. And, and that, of course, led to the whole homocysteine theory of depression, which is a wonderful theory because it doesn't negate any other theory of depression. You know, it actually unifies all of the theories. So it's, it's kind of a unifying hypothesis and it really does make sense clinically. Sounds like Albert Einstein has arrived at psychopharmacology. <laughs> oh, you, oh my goodness. Well, you're talking about yourself now. No, not me. <laughs> the unified field theory of the universe. So no, I'm oh, so right. interested yeah. in learning about this because yeah. over with Dr. Walsh, we're really interested over there with studying methylation and cryptopyrrole and copper and so on. Right. Uh, what right. what's going on over there, and, and homocysteine is relevant to all of that over there, just as I'm sure it's relevant to. So let's go ahead and talk about it. Yeah. Now you said a couple buzzwords for you and I get them, but people right. don't know what a TCA is. That's a tricyclic right. antidepressant. Imipramine, right. you know, tofranil, um, you know, all those. Elavil, right? Yeah. yeah, and Pamelar. So the, the issue is. That was what we were using when I was a kid. That was the, those were the group of medications that we were happy to have because people did get better on them. But let's get away from yeah. that old thing in the past. What, how does this whole homocysteine thing play itself out? What's, give us a, a foundation so we can begin to grasp what's going on there. Sure, sure. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, um, the, the, uh, gosh, we don't have to rattle off the limitations of the traditional antidepressant therapy of the sexual side effects, the weight gain that's possible, the withdrawal syndromes, you know, and we've sort of leaped head first into this idea that it's just perfectly fine to give people, you know, antipsychotics, even if they're not psychotic, it's just perfectly fine. <laughs> you know, in fact, there's certain antipsychotics or three that come to mind. And of course, you know, which they are, but the majority of people on them don't even have schizophrenia. They have depression. And yet, you know, we, we find overwhelmingly these patients are not um, warned about metabolic syndrome, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, tardive dyskinesia, and so forth. So again, we're trying to coax that remission remission out. But you're you're right to start with homocysteine. I mean, it's it's an amino acid, um, and it's it's not a dietary amino acid. Homocysteine is really synthesized when we take in methionine, and the Western diet is very heavy in methionine. And so, uh, we've measured plasma homocysteine levels in the research area, we can measure the, the homocysteine in the cerebrospinal fluid. And we kind of realize that they, they don't have to correlate. There's, you know, the, you can have a normal uh, homocysteine in the, in the periphery, but not across the blood-brain barrier, which we'll talk about. But <clears throat> when we see elevated levels of homocysteine, First of all, you can, be, you can be normal in the body, but high across the blood-brain barrier with homocysteine. If you're high in the body, you can pretty much guarantee you're going to be high across the blood-brain barrier. But when the levels are high, we see all sorts of neuropsychiatric, neurodevelopmental, and um, basically, you know, neuro, neurological, neurological, degenerative disease, you know. So uh, it, it correlates with dementia, with vascular dementia, with stroke. Uh, with depression, with schizophrenia. You know, schizophrenics have higher than normal homocysteine across the blood-brain barrier, autism, you know, repeated miscarriages. So anywhere you see uh, issues of neurodevelopment, neuropsychiatric illness, or neurodegeneration, you see this elevation in homocysteine to, to levels 
that are toxic. Now, homocysteine itself is toxic to DNA. It actually pre-programs the DNA uh, for early death. It's toxic to vessels. It, it causes endothelial damage. It causes membrane damage. It's a source of inflammation, and it it's a source of oxidative stress. So it's no wonder that patients with high homocysteine have strokes, right? It's no wonder it's a risk factor for that. So uh, repeated miscarriages, women that have had repeated miscarriages often have high homocysteine and MTHFR polymorphism, which we'll talk about. You know, MT uh, even um, homocysteine levels actually predict, like if you have a stroke, uh, the patients who neurologically improve over the next two weeks and get to baseline versus the patients who decline neurologically and, and get worse or don't recover, it all depends on how high is it homocysteine at the time of stroke and during recovery. Is um, that right? That is very yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a direct correlation. And PTSD, for example, somebody that has post-traumatic stress disorder, you can actually predict a good core, a favorable course or a deteriorating course uh, based on the homocysteine level, is, which is an, an amazing too. And, and we talked last time a lot about post-concussive syndrome. So the patients who have a concussion and develop post-concussive syndrome versus the patients who have a concussion and kind of do okay and kind of recover and don't have residual deficits, again, homocysteine is, is going to be high in the, in, the, in the group at risk. So it, obviously lowering homocysteine is good, but when we metabolize homocysteine, it's called basically the methylation cycle um, but a bottom line is the carbon one cycle, it's got various names, but when we break down homocysteine, four things happen. One is, uh, we get rid of its toxicity, right? It's a toxic, uh, chemical. The second thing that happens is that we make, uh, methyl donors and methylation is such a key, uh, biological process that when we turn on and off DNA, we're using the methylation process to tell what genes to be expressed and what not to be expressed. So impaired homocysteine metabolism means impaired methylation and, and impairment in, in DNA expression, um, impairment in hormone signaling, things like that. Um, the, the third thing that happens uh, when we break down homocysteine is we're allowed to make monoamines, right? We have to methylate our monoamines. And some of the enzymes and coenzymes that are involved in the synthesis of norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, melatonin, they're also, you, they're, there's sort of a lot of crossover between homocysteine breakdown and methyl donation making and the synthesis of monoamines. Okay, right? I want to stop so, you right finally, there, Andy. Mm -hmm. Let me interrupt you for just a second because uh, you're, yeah. we're saying some things that are totally interesting to me and I'm riding the train with you right now. Mm -hmm. And But I know some people are listening to us. They're looking out the window, okay? And we really gotcha. need, to, gotcha. we need to stay with this thing a little bit closer in terms of monoamine. What is a monoamine? And then right, the methylation right. process, how it turns off the DNA, because that's so doggone relevant because that whole thing, understanding all that is where the rubber meets the road if you are doing psychopharmacology on any level. So there's a, a place for the whole thing to work together correctly. So right. you're, let's you're talk absolutely about, right. Let's, let's start back and say, you know, what is a monoamine? Let's, let's talk about that thing. Right. Monoamine, that's just basically these are neurotransmitters, norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, melatonin. The and basic we, neurotransmitters. The yeah. basic neurotransmitters, right, that we think are in short supply when somebody's depressed, right? Mm -hmm. And so for years, Prozac, Paxil, and Zoloft, they block the reuptake of monoamines, right? But they don't make your brain make more of them. In fact, the great paradox is you'll meet the patient says, well, I was on 20 of Prozac. It worked good for six months. And then it kind of quit working. So they doubled it to 40 milligrams. It worked good for two months. And it kind of, you know, kind of quit work and I got depressed again. So they gave me another 20 milligrams and it worked good for two weeks and it quit working. Well, what's happened is the Prozac itself has, has literally tricked the brain. It's, it's blocking the reptake of the serotonin yeah. that floats back to the alpha one autoreceptor on that serotonin cell body and says, look, there's enough serotonin out here. You stop making it. So the cell, the Prozac itself tricks the brain into synthesizing and releasing less serotonin. And so you'll meet patients and say, well, I'm not particularly depressed anymore, but if I stop this Prozac, I sure get depressed. Well, exactly. That's the, or it, it quits working on them. And that's been a term Prozac poop out. But basically, um, that's, that's the idea. The monoamine is the serotonin or epinephrine dopamine. We think these are in short supply and depression for this genetic reason. And well, of course, one of the things that we see, Andy, just to interrupt real quickly is, and I call it Prozac stupid because mm -hmm. they get a cognitive deficit as well as the uh, side effect that you're talking about, because Prozac actually builds up. It actually creates that um, uh, decreased in neurotransmitter. And then what happens is you get a cognitive deficit as well. 
And what right. they say after they've been on Prozac for a while, I can't find the bathroom. What was I talking about? I just said something. Right. And they have Absolutely. a cognitive. So sorry to interrupt you. I just thought I'd bring it. No, so you nailed it. You've got and you. affective. Exactly. You, you know, SRIs, as antidepressants, are known to have short-term memory deficits and cognitive dulling, cognitive blunting, you know, where the patient says, well, I'm not depressed, but I'm not happy either. I can't laugh or cry. And that it's a funny sort of a side effect, if you want to even call it that, or maybe just an effect of having fluoxine on board. Because when we have a, a teenager who's getting into fights and getting into trouble and having anger outbursts, what do we do? Put them on fluoxine because we want that emotional blunting, right? We want to lengthen the fuse um, mm -hmm. and not make them so impulsive. So we're almost taking advantage of that side effect. That is what we have to go to. Yeah. 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 And so you're absolutely right. Yeah. So I, I did go quite fast to that, but, you're, but when we break down homocysteine, that's necessary. That's a necessary step to make the methyl donation to make that serotonin, to make that norepinephrine. So the bottom line is if somebody has a, if they're not metabolizing homocysteine, well, they're not making monoamines. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons, um, genetically that somebody just can't make enough serotonin. And so if you look at a big map of all the, you know, you go from tyrosine hydroxylase or tryptophan hydroxylase to serotonin, tyrosine hydroxylase, norepinephrine, dopamine, you know, those enzymes and those coenzymes uh, have to be functioning properly. And to get the methyl donation, to make, to get rid of the homocysteine to have methyl donation, well, all those enzymes and coenzymes have to be functioning properly. So when people ask me, what's the genetic cause of depression? I say, we well, you know, it's kind of like the Enigma machine from World War II, right? <laughs> the Enigma machine was this, you would, there's this preset code that nobody knows, and they, you would punch in letters, and on, the, and, and on the other side, another code comes out. And as long as you knew the code going in and the code coming out, you were okay. But for every me message, the code was different. And that's the way it is with depression. Everybody in our waiting room comes to us with this unique cluster of genetic differences. And some are flat out mutations and some are minor polymorphisms so that maybe an enzyme is a little less functional. Maybe it's 10% less functional, maybe 70% less, maybe 30% less functional, but it's less functional enough that now we have a problem with the functioning of the enzymes and the coenzymes necessary to break down homocysteine and make the methyl donation and necessary to go from tryptophan or tyrosine to the end product monoamine. And so we don't know that exact cluster of genetic vulnerabilities that led that patient to us. But we know that, believe it or not, we, we can actually circumvent all of them if we use the reduced B vitamins because whether we're breaking down homocysteine or making monoamines, our B vitamins are the coenzymes and they are the cofactors for those enzymatic steps. And if somebody says, well, my B vitamins are fine and my steps to metabolize my B vitamins are fine. My tyrosine hydroxylase is bad. My methionine synthase is bad. So it's not an issue with the coenzyme. It's an issue with the enzyme. How are you going to fix that? But what we've learned is you can actually coax normal activity out of the defective enzyme by giving supraoptimal levels of coenzyme. So enough worker B, enough helpers can make the, the, the thing move. Uh, so, so when a patient's sitting in our waiting room, okay, maybe they have MTHFR, which is a folate issue, which is very, very common in depression, and a B12 and a tyrosine hydroxylase. So maybe they have methionine synthase and MTHFR. We don't know because we only test for 1% of 1% that could be wrong. But what we know is we can circumvent it by giving all of the reduced B vitamins and all the micronutrients necessary for these cycles to go forward. For right, stop right there. Reduced, right. So that's yeah. great. So I'm sorry to interrupt you because I'm just... No, you're good. I'm, I'm riding with the audience here and I'm thinking, you know, the, the issue then is let's talk about reduced B vitamins because you've said that a couple of <laughs> times and people are thinking, give me an answer, Dr. Farah. This is an answer. <laughs> right. You're close to an answer here, but I still don't get it. So what, right. are, what are reduced B vitamins? Well, you know, most people don't realize that B vitamins come into the body as prodrugs. Our liver and other uh, tissue actually break them down to the active coenzyme form so that when you take in B12, B12 or B9, which is folate or B1, 2, or 3, these, these B vitamins in their raw form, for example, folate in nature is dihydrofolate. Well, it takes four enzymatic steps to break that down to L-methylfolate, which is the form the brain needs to make its monoamines and to break down homocysteine. So if any one of those enzymes is defective along the way, well, it doesn't matter what your vitamin intake is, you can't use it. You know, you're taking in more and more of something that's not going to 
that you can't use. And that's why what was funny was a lot of the early, early literature, like 60s, 70s, early 80s, where they said, we're going to use B vitamins for depression or B vitamins for dementia. And they never worked. Well, of course it didn't work because you're flooding the system with something that the body can't use. You know, it, we, real, we realized later on that it was not in the Western world, we have folate in the bread, for goodness sake. So it's not an issue of vitamin intake, but an issue of vitamin metabolism that is disallowing for adequate monoamine synthesis. So that's why the real clever thing to do is not to give more of something you can't metabolize, but give the fully reduced or fully metabolized form of, of B9 or folate or you know B12, B1, B2, B3, because all of them are important. So again, you'll, you'll also see the scenario where they say, well, the doctor checked my blood level, my folate is fine, my B12 is fine. Great. Well, that, that's good news. But it doesn't mean the reduced folate and the, the methyl B12. It doesn't mean that L-methylfolate and methyl B12 are normal across the blood-brain barrier. In fact, there was a study uh, in this year, actually, uh, in the American Journal of Psychiatry. It was January's issue. It was called Neurometabolic Disorders, Potentially Treatable Abnormalities in Patients with Treatment Refractory Depression and Suicidal Behavior. And they basically found that these people that don't respond to antidepressants who have chronic suicidal thinking and behaviors and so forth. Well, the majority of them, you know, their their folate was normal in the system, in their serum, but it wasn't normal in the brain, right, in the CSF. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, they were lacking that coenzyme. And so we've mentioned folate and we've mentioned MTHFR or methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. This is the last enzymatic step, the last enzyme necessary to get to that coenzyme of L-methylfolate needed to make the serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, and so forth. The problem is that it's defective in up to 70, 76, depending on what you could say 76% of depressed individuals have one of the major polymorphisms of that. So they're just not able to make enough folate, uh, in, you know, in the L-methylfolate form. Uh, and and what, what you find, too, is if we just flood the system with L-methylfolate, well, you know, some people get better, but some people get irritable. And it wasn't the answer we hoped for simply because what we've learned is, well, we're testing for one polymorphism. What we found is the MTHFR presence is really a marker for multiple polymorphisms. And that's why I call it the Enigma machine. The patient right. in front of me, they may have, yeah, they may have a B12, a B9, and a tyrosine hydroxylase, or a methionine synthase, and a cystathione beta synthase, and a B3 or something. They may, we don't know what that, we test for a small percentage of the enzymes and coenzymes that could be defective. Uh, but, but the good news is, if you give all of them, if you give B1, 2, 3, 6, 9, and 12, and all the, if you look at every coenzyme in that system, and every coenzyme necessary, to make those defective enzymes work, well, you can give that. You can give that in, uh, in believe it or not, in a non-prescription form. So there are reduced B vitamins now in that are what, 33 bucks a month. And now patients that have come to me and said, well, I've tried all the antidepressants. They don't work for me. I say, I think I know why. <laughs> you know, the, you're, the antidepressants, you're, you have the genetic-based depression based in these polymorphisms, and we're going to circumvent every one of them with one or two of these reduced B vitamins a day. So now, and then, now, now there's some, yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to catch it because I'm still yeah. riding with the public on this. And yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, give us an idea of, you said $33. I mean, it sounds like you just go in and get them at Amazon, but how do you know which brand is pharmaceutically acceptable? One of the higher grade, what, which, how do you make that right. selection? Well, you know, they, there's a lot of brands of L-methylfolate. And, and again, when that first came out, um, gosh, over 10 years ago now, I mean, I was the number one L-methylfolate writer in the country because it was prescription-based. I thought, finally, somebody read my articles, right? <laughs> and so now we can address MTHFR. Mm -hmm. The problem is that it didn't work for most people. And the reason it didn't work was, again, if all you do is address folate, well, you're catching that it had worked for some people and, and there's some people that are still on it and doing great mm -hmm. because they're that small percentage who only have MTHFR, gotcha. but most mm -hmm. patients had it in the presence of other polymorphisms. So yeah. the brands, the, the, basically the one company that said, look, we're going to circumvent all of them is, is JMAC and they make Inlight, E-N-L-Y-T-E, Inlight. Now there's, mm -hmm. um, there's three versions of Inlight. There's Inlight by itself, E-N-L-Y-T-E, which is prescription form and it has B1, 2, 3, 6, 9, has all the reduced B vitamins and all the micronutrients, and that was I did the pivotal trial for them, where we took um, we took uh, 330 folks who had depression uh, with MTHFR, 
and half got placebo and half got in line. We got 42% remission and 70% of the folks responded, but 42% of the group on the active drug got to full remission, which was great. Now, at the end of the study, we were able to double the dose and capture another chunk of people who, who were now remitters. And there's, some of these patients are still around, and let's say two of them a day, there's some better stuff, but then we would add a low-dose antidepressant to it, and that's what kind of kicked them into gear. So you see the reversal here, the B vitamins as the base therapy, the antidepressant as the augmenter adjunct mm. therapy, not the other way around. You Interesting, know? So, yeah. So that was with basic good old-fashioned Inlight. Well, then they came up with Inbrace HR, so E-N-B-R-A-C-E-H-R, which is essentially the same compound because it's a prenatal vitamin, right? So it's pretty, very, pretty much the same ingredients. But if you're going to give reduced folates, and it gives three forms of folate, because it's not enough, believe it or not, just to give L-methyl, the brain does need all forms of folate. It needs dihydrofolate, needs methyl, uh, tetrahydrofolate, and L-methylfolate. There's a folate pool in the brain. The vast majority of folate is being used for RNA and DNA transcription. It's not being used for this luxury of monoamine production. So it's nice to fill up the well before you take water out. So that's another uh, beautiful thing about the Enlight was they realized we've got to replenish the folate pool because these people have had uh, this deficiency lifelong. And again, you'll meet patients say, I've never felt better. Um, I recently did a, a, there was, I was in a state recently, uh, anyway, went to a Southeastern state to talk about, you know, they hired me as sort of a consultant to the Medicaid board to say, what drugs should we, you have on our formula? What shouldn't we have? And I started talking about the reduced B vitamins. And before I got back to the hotel, they were already calling the company. Some of the people on the panel, administrators on the panel (laughs) were trying to get some of these reduced B vitamins for themselves, which I thought was very nice that Mm -hmm. we were that convincing about the need. So there's the Inbrace HR, which is doubles as a prenatal is being studied for depression in pregnancy, right? So the the same chemicals used for Mm -hmm. maximal yeah, it makes sense, right? Because if you're going to reduce homocysteine, you reduce neurotoxicity uh, and you basically have optimal uh, neuroprotection. Uh, you know, we'll talk about neuroprotection in a bit. But then the third version, um, a lot of the, they discovered that a lot of patients were taking the B vitamins, but they're also taking vitamin D. Now, I'm not a big vitamin D researcher and it's not my area, but I knew a lot of my patients were taking vitamin D. And so they made Inlight D, so E-N-L-Y-T-E dash D. And this is the mail order form that is the $33 a month. I believe it's like around $30 a month. Mm-hmm. So this is your Inlight compound. They put on the vitamin D and now anybody can get it without a prescription. Uh, so you'll find most people do fine with one a day. The, the beautiful thing about this too, is you can use it in kids. Now when a child or a teenager comes to you with depression, you talk to the patient and the parent and you say, you know, I just have to warn you, there's a chance of increased suicidal thinking if you're under age 24 on these antidepressants. Well, who wants that? You know? Yeah. So uh, they're, they're more than happy to take something natural and safe. And I have a ongoing open label, uh, I, I need to publish this pretty soon. I've got enough kids now to, to make it uh, a worthwhile publication. Where you have the children and teenagers on uh, this inlight on reduced B vitamins for depression. And again, there's no, no increase in suicidal thinking. Now, it's not placebo controlled or anything like that. It's just an open label trial. But I can guarantee you these, these folks are doing so much better. They're so happy that they're not on an antidepressant with all the warnings we have with that. Oh, really? So those are the versions, and that, that is the best version. That, well, let me stop you right there because you mentioned yeah, children. Yeah. Let me catch this real quick before yeah. I go further. Yeah. Is the dose for the children different than it is for the adults? You know, most people are going to do fine with once-a-day dosing. I think okay. that... I think that in psychiatry, about a third to 40% of my people go to two a day. In fact, if somebody's in the hospital, I'm, I'm mainly a hospitalist, I mean, they get two a day because, I mean, the severity of the pathology just generally argues for the presence of multiple polymorphisms. And, gotcha. and we do spread out the dosing. Most uh, vitamin, transport, vitamin absorption is transport dependent. Yeah, again, that, that study of uh, the treatment-resistant depressed patients showed, well, yeah, their folate was normal in the uh, serum, but well, there was cerebral folate deficiency was the most common thing we found in the presence of, you know, low uh, L-methyl folate. So again, they're getting it in their diet. They're just not, not able to optimally metabolize it, optimally get it across the blood brain barrier and use it uh, to make monoamines. And so, so you, you know, for you years- give it, Do you give it by, do you give it BID or because nighttime supplement B vitamins frequently keep a person awake? How do you actually dose it? You know, as long as they're two to three hours apart, your absorption is going to be okay. fine. So, okay. yeah, yeah, morning and lunch, no big deal. Okay. Um, yeah. 
Thank yeah, you. And you know, it's, it's, yeah, no problem. No. And, and, you know, it's, it's just, just so funny. I mean, for years, you know, we, you meet these people that just have had chronic depression and they'll give you a list of antidepressants that don't work. And I, and I realized, well, this is the genetic type of depression. And now we can finally address this, you know, at its, at its root cause. And, and, um, and again, I'll tell you on another offshoot, there were some patients that came to the study and said, well, I have bipolar depression. I said, well, this is really isn't about bipolar depression, but we know that antidepressants are bipolar. Well, they can be tricky, right? There's the data that says we can induce a mania. Uh, and then what gets indicated, you'll get the, um, you know, most people with bipolar illness for depression, well, I'm sure they've tried Lamictal. Well, the problem with Lamictal, Lamotrigine, is that it's just like methotrexate. It inhibits dihydrofolate reductase. So not oh, many people know this. Know that. No. Yes. So the people on Lamictal will say, well, it kind of worked for my mood, but the longer I'm on it, I just have this low energy, low motivation, low concentration. Of course you do, because the Lamictal itself is depleting folate in your brain, depleting your ability to metabolize folate. So if a patient says, you know, I, I don't know if this Lamictal is working, I'm happy to stop it and put them on the reduced folates and inlight and so forth. And if they say, well, it kind of helped me, you know, keeps me, keeps my mood kind of level, but I have this low energy, low motivation, low concert. Well, fine. We'll supplement you with the reduced B vitamins. It's amazing. You know, lithium, um, the first generation anticonvulsants of the second generation ones, uh, Lamictal is the only one that's folate depleting, uh, you know, women on high dose estrogens, right? So birth control pills inhibit the genes, the, this expression of the genes necessary to even absorb folate. So a lot of young ladies who say, when I take birth control, I get moody. Well, that's just estrogens messing with the brain. Imagine that. But the young lady <laughs> says, well, I've been on my triphasal and now I just have this low energy, low motivational cause. Yes, yeah, she's gotten folate depleted because of that. Uh, all your, you know, there's so many agents out there that we just have to be mindful of that are, that are folate depleting. Uh, but again, think of all the, the epilepsy patients on the anticonvulsants for years. And they just oh thought, gosh. well, I have low energy because I'm on Depakote or something. Oh well, it may gosh. not be the Depakote, you know. Well, no, let, let me catch you for just a second because I'm enjoying yeah. this conversation so much. I'm so lost in it. I got to take that moment for the sponsors <laughs> here in the middle. And, it will, and we'll just take a quick break. And you and I will take a deep breath. And we'll come right back because I've got a question that is going to be relevant for everybody here. And that is, I'm going to ask you about, after you do this, how do you measure it? What's, what's the measuring tool that you start thinking about? How is homocysteine a marker and what do you do? How does your doctor measure it? And then mm -hmm. once you measure it, how do you stay on top of it over time? So we'll take a break right now, back in just a moment. Well, folks, you know as well as I do that psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medication trials and those very, very brief hospitalizations may prove insufficient to deal at home with the complexity of troubled children and, and those adolescents from 6 to 17 years old. Improved care, those next mandatory steps, should include a more comprehensive approach to address those multiple levels of challenges, from family to peers to school, diagnostically from defiance to depression, on every level for families, including military families, internationally. The Barry Robinson Center's 32-acre open college-like campus in Norfolk, Virginia, provides safety and security and clean, comfortable living. How do we know? We refer folks over there all the time, strongly endorse what they're doing. So for further information and informed interview, connect at this page, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing, now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's dhalab.com forward slash core. 
Thank you so much, Andy. Welcome back, folks. I mean, this is such an interesting conversation. It's hard to not get excited about something like this because it's transformational. I mean, it's just a real opportunity to listen to a guy like you talk about the reality of what's going on with brain function. And I'm going to have a lot of this stuff in the show notes because we're still talking fast and we got to, there, there's a lot of material here, but I'm really looking forward to putting this in the show notes with the link. So the question that we want to get back to is mm-hmm. let's take it quickly for the man on the street. Okay. What should the doctor measure? How, if they don't do a mouth swab with whatever gene site or whatever, um, right. gentle mind, if they don't do a mouth swab and look at uh, MTHFR polymorphisms, polymorphism folks means a genetic variation in the way the genetic structure is with these different enzymes and metabolic pathways. So if they don't do the, they don't do the mouth swab because they're not there yet, how do they measure it easily and then how do they track it? Oh, it's a great question. In fact, out, this is going to surprise you. Outside the research setting, I don't bother to check, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'll tell you because first of all, we always check, right? You're not going to st- stick a needle in somebody's bag. So the the, the serum homocysteine is is defined as as you know uh, normal if it's below 15 micromoles per liter. So if you're you're moderately elevated, you're 15 to 30 micromoles. And if you're intermediate, you're 30 to 100. If you're severe, you're over 100. That, that's usually very pathological. But 15 to, uh, you know, 5 to 15 is going to be thought, thought to be normal as far as serum homocysteine. Okay. Um, so that's our starting point. Now, we know from our studies that you can have a normal homocysteine in the periphery but still be high across the blood-brain barrier. So I always tell people just because they're in your waiting room, well, their homocysteine's probably because they have some neuropsychiatric uh, disease, including depression, or they have some neurodegenerative disease, dementia, stroke, so forth, it's probably high across the blood-brain barrier. And then when we test for MTHFR and these polymorphisms, you know, when, I, when we send off the typical uh, MTHFR screen is for A to C, right? C to T. These are, you know, two of the th- of the forty different polymorphisms. So we're testing for two of the most common, but it may come back normal, and the patient still could have MTHFR. So I yeah, tell people, yeah. the reality is because they're in your waiting room, uh, there there probably is no elevation. The other question that comes up is, okay, you know, do homocysteine levels in the periphery reflect across the blood-brain barrier? You say they, they don't have to correlate. Well, in general, if you're high across, you're high in the periphery, you can bet that there's about a, with a 10% variance, it's going to be high across the blood-brain barrier. But even the real question is, we don't measure intracellular. We measure in, you know, we, we're measuring uh, basically serum levels and trying to extrapolate not not only CSF, but What's going on inside that brain cell, which of course nobody can can ever know. For so for all those vagaries, I say, hey, don't bother to check. Now at the same time, in our study, well, we checked homocysteine, right, and we found that it did correlate. That when we were able to lower, you know, when when patients responded, uh, the in general, the homocysteine dropped by thirty percent. So when you're getting the active compound and you're resp- we're basically getting the active compound. Uh, and responding in an antidepressant fashion to the re- these reduced B vitamins, yeah, the homocysteine dropped by by over a third. Now, there were some people that it just wouldn't drop. So they were even getting better with their depression, but peripherally that homocysteine was up and heavy smokers, right? So uh, smoking will increase homocysteine dramatically, uh, lipid-lowering agents. I mean, um, they're just a, a tremendous number of, of um, medications. I already mentioned, um, you know, the... Um, uh, the first-generation anticonvulsants in Lamictal, but also L-dopa or isoniazide, methotrexate, theophylline, uh, birth control pills, lithium, anything that will increase gastric pH. So there's a, just a, a glucophage. Any number of medications are associated with, with elevation of homocysteine in the periphery. So that's why our peripheral marker isn't really uh, reliable. So long story short is, yes, I talk a lot about these markers uh, in high homocysteine, in the research setting, in the practical day-to-day setting, I'm so much happier to just try the agent, try the reduced B vitamins, because it's safer and often works just as well or better than an antidepressant, and it does no harm. You know, everything in our study was placebo rate, no weight gain, no sexual side effects, no suicidal thinking. So to me, uh, it's easier to just go ahead and try that. <coughs> you know, I do like the gene side testing and ID genetics and all that, <coughs> but, but I tell folks that... The only thing in there that points to a treatment direction is, of course, MTHFR. It tells you 
what antidepressants you're going to metabolize well, but it doesn't tell you what you're going to respond to, which is certainly much more complex. In fact, you may metabolize venlafaxine very, very well, but you can still respond to it because it breaks down to desvenlafaxine, which is prestige, right? Mm -hmm. So just because you metabolize something well doesn't mean you may or may not respond to it. So mm -hmm. uh, it may mm -hmm. predict side effects and so forth, but so many of these agents, you know, fluoxetine and norfluoxetine, I mean, a lot of these agents have active metabolites that we have to have to think about. So I, I guess I'm a fan of genetic testing, but I understand its limits and I understand that um, I, I like this treatment anyway in the, in the presence of any sort of, you know, in the absence of the testing. Well, that's interesting. So then the ultimate business for you is really a good clinical evaluation yeah. on the front end. Yeah. This person is yeah. treatment refractory and there's something mm -hmm. wrong here. And we're going to take a look at the homocysteine, which is, a, which is somewhat helpful, not absolutely. Right. But you really, I think you're telling us, and I'm, I'm kind of reading between the lines here, that when a person just in a metaphoric way, I hate to say it sounds so rude, but smells bad from the point of view, yeah. they have just so, they're so rotten in Denmark, and it's been right. so long, you would be remiss if you didn't do this as a, right off the hip because you're not going to harm them, and the possibility of hitting a mark is, is very strong. It's very high, exactly, because you don't know going in. You don't know what that, like that enigma sheet, you don't know the cluster, you don't know that code they present with, the environment acts on it, and the outcome uh, is, uh, you know, these, this abnormal production of monoamines. At the same time, you know, you can, you can address every darn one of them. You can give every coenzyme and cofactor and every micronutrient necessary for optimal homocysteine reduction and optimal monoamine uh, synthesis. And you're also, you know, in glial cells, when you reduce homocysteine, you make antioxidants. So you decrease the, um, you know, the oxidative stress uh, and you get rid of the toxicity of homocysteine itself. So again, that's where um, the neuroprotection kicks in is, you know, why do brain cells die sooner than they should? You know, if you, you take a cell out, put it in culture, divides, every cell has its own biological clock. It divides X number of times and then it dies. But brain cell, in patients with dementia, those brain cells are dying too soon, They're dying way too soon. And why is that? Well, there's oxidative stress, uh, you know, there's free radical damages from normal reactions. And finally, there's homocysteine programming that DNA for early cell death and damaging that DNA. So when we give these reduced vitamins, reduce the homocysteine, and we allow the brain for optimal uh, antioxidant production from the glial cells. And guess what? Now we've subtracted out the two main sources of cell death. And that's why when a patient comes to me and says, look, you know, my dad has Alzheimer's, my mom's had vascular dementia for multiple strokes. What can I do? I'm 50 years old. What can I do? I say, well, let's give you <laughs> the right stuff, which is uh, the inlight, of course, to lower the homocysteine and, re and reduce the oxidative stress. And then a good omega-3 because that shores up the membrane. And if they're really, really eager to do even more, then sometimes we'll throw on the N-acetylcysteine or NAC which is just an antioxidant. It's just a, the most potent. It's the glutathione precursor. Now, mm -hmm. the, in the glial cells, you're going to reduce homocysteine. You're going to use B6 for that, reduce B6. And you're going to make your glutathione and make antioxidants. But if you want to give raw, more raw material to help that along, uh, that, that's not a bad idea. So mm -hmm. I've had colleagues of mine say, oh, no, just giving adequate B6, just giving this, the, the light is enough. And I've said, well, you know, I, I Let's just throw in more antioxidants. Just it's not going to hurt them. Mm -hmm. Let's be on the safe side, you know. And well, that's another. So many people are so damaged. I mean, you know, right, right. why not just throw the farm at them if it's not? It's not going to be high cost. And exactly. It's just going to increase the possibility you're going to have a good outcome. It's funny, you know, I, I, I talk to people who organize their entire life about cardiac health and keeping, and they go to the gym and they eat right, so their entire world is centered around the, keeping their, their heart healthy, but what are they doing for their brain, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it, there's a good bit of overlap there, but at the same time, there are things we can be doing uh, to protect that brain going forward, and we need to give it certainly as much attention as the heart, you know? One's no good without the other, right? So, uh, well, this is, this is really interesting, and, and the question for me, uh, there are a couple of things that come up as we're closing yes. here. Uh, yes. You did send us a couple of links to some good PDFs that are going to be in the show notes, folks, on, on the topics. And you want to tell folks a little bit about the two PDFs. One, uh, obviously, we're going to have the, the link to the Hemingway Brain uh, oh, episode because that's going to be a lot of fun. And then yeah. you have the psychiatrist.com article with pages. What was that article about? 
Well, that was, that was the pivotal trial where, you know, Dr. Meck and I took the 330 folks, 160 got placebo, oh, 170 in light. Yeah. And that's where we got the um, 42% remission with this B vitamin. So it's called basic correlation of clinical response with homocysteine reduction during therapy with reduced B vitamins cool. in patients with depression who have these polymorphisms. But I want to emphasize, you don't have to have these polymorphisms. You don't even have to screen for these genetic variants in order to try the reduced B vitamins. It's just the safest, particularly if somebody's young, you know, particularly under age 24, you know. And then there was um, psych annals. I did, um, edited that issue in uh, September of last year, and it was basically on the homocysteine theory of depression. And, uh, you know, there was an article called Theory into Practice, which we can link to, that talks about, okay, you, you know, here's the, the homocysteine basis of depression. And, you know, like I said, it's a unifying theory. Which I, and, and then, of course, the theory into practice, how do you treat it? When I say it's unifying, think about the people that say, well, you know, depression is genetic. After years of looking at the serotonin, when I was a resident, you were a resident, they said, well, the yeah. genetic basis of depression is the CERT, the serotonin transporter. And that was the sexy explanation because all our drugs were like Prozac, but they worked at blocking the uptake of serotonin. It turns out after 13 years of research, that was a dead end. They said, well, yeah, there's stressful life events lead to depression, but the genetic variance that, that's being influenced there, it's not the serotonin transport. In fact, it's actually the presence of MTHFR and other polymorphisms, which we've been talking about. And so the genetic basis, this, this is the, gets at the root cause of genetic basis of depression. The people that say, well, I think depression's impaired hormonal signaling. Well, fine, you have to have appropriate methylation for appropriate hormonal signaling, so it, it includes that theory. The people that write about the inflammatory response in depression have the old chicken and egg argument, does inflammation lead to depression or depression lead to inflammation? Well, sure enough, if you're not metabolizing homocysteine and making monoamines and making antioxidants, you can't handle the inflammatory response. You know, uh, So it doesn't matter which... Um, you know, theory and the epigenetics, of course, is all about epigenetics. epigenetics. You know, they, they come in with this pre-existing yeah. code. Yeah. And the environment acts on it and leads to the poor expression of certain genes to make monoamines. So I'll tell people wherever your belief has been and <laughs> what causes depression, this theory goes ahead and accounts for every one of them. Uh, and and it's just it's it's pretty much a, a, to me an airtight theory, and the proof is in the pudding. You know uh, the the pivotal trial, and and of course uh, the the childhood trial that's going on open label. Um, I had one. I did a whole teleconference one time, and a guy said, "Well, when are you going to write more articles?" I thought, "My goodness, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing as much as I can." <laughs> you know? Well, at that uh, point, I'm going to catch you right there because I do want to yeah. make sure. Because I was while you're talking, I'm really enjoying listening to you, but I was looking yeah. for the reference. Please send me by email so I can include it in the show notes. Absolutely. The reference on the psych annals. Because oh, absolutely. Because I've read that a couple times, and that one looks terribly interesting. And yeah. I'd like to read it myself, of course, but then I think there are a number of people listening who are like, hey, let's, let me see if I can reference that article and get into it. It would be, be very good. Outstanding. I'd be, be delighted, yeah, and I just can't thank you enough for your interest. And, and you know, I, th I think medicine is like that battleship, and they, they turn, battleships turn slowly. And for years, I mean, years we've had the marketing and the research on the blocking of reuptake of monoamines and every mm -hmm. new drug. I mean, some of the newer ones, they're kind of acting like, you know, agonist, antagonist, at certain postsynaptic receptors, yep. and that's, that's a little fancier. But none of them make your brain make more of the chemicals in short supply, and that's, you know... That's why That's, three out of 10 people get better and seven out of 10 people just simply don't get better. Uh, right. And so this is a real new way of thinking about it. And, and again, I think the battleships do turn slowly. And I think if, you know, if there were advertisements on the evening news about this vitamin therapy, I certainly, we would certainly see, you know, have patients come in asking for it, but instead oh, yeah. there are advertisements for antipsychotics and patients come in asking for antipsychotics and I give them the routine, just routine risk benefit side effects that talk, talk about all the possible things that can go wrong. Like, NMS and metabolic syndrome and movement disorders. They say, well, I don't want to take that. And I say, well, okay, here's something that's safer. You know, well, you know, it's easier. this weird thing. We're living in a strange world, and we do have to wind up. And a strange world of managed care is also in a conspiracy, oddly enough. And I don't really think it's a conspiracy, but, I mean, it has that quality with the uh, medications, pharmaceutical companies. And managed care has taken it upon themselves to correct the pharmaceutical companies to make right. sure the pharmaceuticals companies get it. And the managed care companies are so doggone far away from human beings and carrots. It's like we got several levels of stratification away from reality. I mean, we've gone from dreams to like dreams right. to the 10 power, you know, and we've got high school girls telling us what to do or with managed care tell us, you can't do that. You know, that's not right. 
insane. It's truly insane. There's no other business. You know, the plumber doesn't come out here and have to call somebody else to ask what tools he needs to use, you know, and get approval to use those tools. He has a job to do to let the guy do his job, you know. Yeah. And so you're absolutely right. And a lot of times you kind of scratch yourself, what do you need me for? If you're going to tell me what I have to prescribe and what I have to change to next and what, you know, uh, you, you, and obviously you realize, well, we're here to take the liability when things go wrong. And you have the, a third party that assumes all of the authority, but no responsibility. I mean, it's a very... A very troubling situation and we've all had our numerous frustrations with that and uh, well, you're, and the, you're absolutely right talking my language with that the new but, responsibility andy as you've said so articulately so well uh, responsibility yeah. is to realities to face reality i mean you, you mentioned right. belief i was going to take issue with you a little bit on theory because i mean what your the the word theory then gets a little over in belief and i think what's really right. nice about what you're talking about is you're getting closer and closer to actual molecular cellular physiology to reality and reality is what everybody should be supporting instead of dreams fantasies and maybes i mean it's just that way Right. And, you know, the whole idea, you know, the, the epigenetics is sort of a buzzword now, but what it really does mean is that there are psychosocial stressors that interact with the genes, you know, so we, mm -hmm. you know, very few people come to me and, I mean, some people do come and say, well, I've been depressed my whole life, can't explain it. But most people, it's, it's the psychosocial stress that leads to the inadequate synthesis of monoamine. So there is a, you know, a psychological component as well. So I think you're right. We have to tune in that we are human beings and that we do have a transcendent nature and we do, you know, we do respond to <laughs> the psychological in a biological way, but yeah, we well. also have to tune in to the soul as well. We do. What a way to close, Andy. You did it again, buddy. I mean, uh, you're, you're talking the truth. Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. And it's so comprehensive. Well, it's really great. We do have to wind up, but listen, give us a website that you would like us to go to and we'll close on that. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're, you're a star. Yeah. InlightRx, E-N-L-Y-T-R-X.com. You know, in full disclosure, I did do their pivotal trial. So I did get a grant, a very, very small grant to, to help with that, to help mm -hmm. write that trial up. So, um, but that is the, there are some um, podcasts there. There's some um, educational stuff about that's the main source for your reduced B vitamins. And that's the one, there's really nothing else like it. There's, there's a lot of L-methyls out there, but nobody has just said, let's include all of the possible polymorphs, let's circumvent every possible genetic variant that can lead to so e-n-l-y-t-e-r-x.com would be your your source for that and i'll get you the other links and of course thank you again for mentioning hemingway's brain it's been very fun to uh to lecture about the that and i'll tell you hopefully you can join me in paris next year that's where the hemingway conference we would have coffee people. right there on the champs Elysees. <laughs> let's do it well but we'll head there <laughs> let's do it. thank you so much buddy thank you you have a good one thanks for listening to core brain journal we're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.